Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, as always, and for the second time this week, I'm joined by Max Brown, my co-host, the former USC quarterback, our TrojanSports.com analyst, and really a third time in the last week, because uh, <laughs> you, you never heard the Thursday podcast from last week. We hadn't, and- we hadn't done anything for like three months, and we, uh, <laughs> we're, we're talking three times in five days. It must mean it's a busy, uh, busy week in college football or something. One day when we release the Greatest Hits album, we'll throw some unreleased <laughs> content from the Thursday podcast on there. Never, never before seen uh, footage. <laughs> Max, how are you? I am doing well. How about you, Ron? Uh, boy, it's been a busy week. Yeah, uh, I believe it. We're going to dive into, obviously, the news of the week, the Pac-12 announcement of no sports of any kind until January 1st, which affects, obviously, football, but also basketball. And other sports, of course. That came out Tuesday. On Wednesday, USC had its press conference with Mike Bone, Clay Helton, Dr. Seth Gamrat, and Keaton Slovis and Talno Hufanga. So we got a lot of perspective there. Before we get into that, real quick, I want to let you know that the sky is not falling at Trojansports.com. We are still planning to have a huge fall content-wise. And what this means is just uh, even heavier recruiting coverage wrapping up the 2021 class and getting a jump start on 2022 and since there's not going to be anything going on here to cover i will be hitting the road and getting face to face with usc commits and face to face but with six feet of distancing and masks so <laughs> there you uh, go there all protocols followed but yeah i'll be on the road here in the next few weeks probably going down to texas for a while and bouncing around from there and just going where the stories and content are and making sure that our subscribers are getting a full return on value as always you can become a subscriber with no risk and no upfront commitment by taking advantage of our free trial right now it presently runs through october 1st and the promo code is usc free 2020 usc free 2020 you get full premium access with a free trial through October 1st, no commitment required. So join in and get ready for a bonanza of recruiting coverage. But today we are talking the end of the 2020 season, the postmortem. Max, we talked in the last podcast, we kind of knew this was coming, but it's official. Let's just start with general reaction. How did you take the Pac-12's announcement Tuesday and everything that came out from USC? General reaction was was not surprised. I think uh, when you, when you rewind two months, I mean, I, I know I've been saying this. I think you were aligned with me uh, as well for the past couple months. The the prospects of a twenty twenty season were very dim, and I think the realities of that we're feeling this week. And I think it's human nature to feel optimistic and and all that. But the example I keep saying is. I live in LA, like a lot of you listeners probably do as well, and we can't go sit inside and have a meal right now, yet we're gonna expect our student athletes to go play football. They're not doing full online, or they're not doing full in-person classes, yet we're expecting the kids to go play football. And I get it, there's tons of money. It's a big part of uh, our culture, our, our weekly uh, weekly schedule in the falls, but when you kind of look at it from a, from a bird's eye view, it felt like this was uh, a matter of when, not if, and. I think the the second part of my, my reaction is I, I thought the timing was was interesting. I mean, right as the players start to get a little bit of a voice, there starts to be a little bit more pushback. Uh, it seemed to happen very quickly once that decision was made. And Ryan, we talked about it last week. It went from, hey, we're releasing our schedule to then, hey, we're canceling football very quickly. That part was a surprise to me. That part was interesting. And it gets into the, hey, did it have anything to do with, with players getting voices and things like that? And we talked about the new research with the heart conditions and whatnot and, and all that. But uh, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to one word and it's liability or who's liable. And at the end of the day, there's tons of money on the line. But these college administrators, the, the commissioner, these school presidents, the worst possible case scenario, more so than losing tons and tons of money, is if a student athlete got sick, hurt, or unhealthy on their watch, and as a result of their decision. And I think that's why we uh, we saw the decisions in the past 48 hours like we did. Yeah, uh, a lot to cover there, and and I want to get into all that. Real fast, though, just about it not being a total surprise, I thought it was telling that Keaton Slovis, uh, when he asked for his reaction, said, quote, it's something that unfortunately you kind of saw coming from a bit away. If you think back a week yeah. ago with all the restrictions still in place, 
we knew it wasn't looking good for our season. And then yesterday, just to have it solidified was really tough to see. So even the players kind of saw a foreboding sense that it was coming. Let's get to the liability stuff, because I went off on a rant on the last podcast. I went off on a rant on the board, and it was more just thinking out loud and and positing that, man, it seems like a real coincidence that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten players formed these unity groups and threw out demands and threatened to opt out and said, we don't think that our health and safety is being fully protected. And then those are the two conferences that make the move to cancel the season. I was surprised at how much pushback there is on that being a factor. And we're going to get into the myocarditis stuff, which I totally believe and is definitely a a valid major, major, major impetus and and probably the driving impetus. I I don't even contest that. But the liability stuff was just kind of uh, thrown to the side whenever it was asked about. Arizona State Athletic Director Ray Anderson was on the Pac-12 call on Tuesday, and he was asked why was it not an option to just have athletes sign waivers, liability waivers, to play the season. And he gave an impassioned response. I thought it was one of the most interesting quotes of the whole day. He said, it's not an option because our responsibilities are not about liability. Our responsibilities are about accountability to these student-athletes and their families, short and long-term. We can't waive our duties and obligations to protect them, driven by science and medicine. We're not driven by lawyers who say, well, relieve you of liability. That's not what floats the boat in this conference. <laughs> so, Interesting. You could tell that it was a sensitive topic and, and notion, and they, they really wanted to push back against that. I asked around some of my sources, and it was roundly dismissed that, no, that had nothing to do with it. I guess we'll never know. But you have to think that liability is a factor to some degree. Think back. So I'm a University of Maryland graduate, so I still try and follow what's going on over there. It's been a rough stretch for the Terps. And go back a few years ago, they had an offensive lineman die during a summer workout. It, It came out that the athletes were being pushed too hard. There weren't the proper cooling protocols, all this stuff. Head coach DJ Durkin loses his job. It's a major scandal. And it was viewed as a preventable situation that, that led to the ultimate tragedy, a death of a player. And while we don't think that there's an immense risk of death with the virus right now, when you throw the myocarditis wrinkle in there, which is uh, an inflammation of the heart muscle, which is now being linked to positive exposure to the COVID-19, you can't not think about liability. You can't. Yep. I guess ultimately it's a, a semantics debate. Because they're saying the same thing. They're saying it's our responsibility to put the health and well-being of athletes first. Well, Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thread to follow in the next next year for sure, I guess six months to, to start. But when, when I hear you say that, the, the word that kind of comes to mind for me is amateurism. And, how, and is this a different ballgame if the, the, the view of the student-athlete is different? What I mean is that, you, that ASU AD's comment – that makes sense given the fact that there are student athletes who are amateurs. But I think a lot of us view that as just not the case. And moving forward, if there is what what are the what what changes as a result of this? And I think one thing that could change is kind of how student athletes are viewed. Is there a governing body that uh, that that they have more leverage? Do they start getting paid more out of this? And those are things that we've been talking about for years. But I think that conversation is a lot different if the view on amateurism from the NCAA and from the athletic director's standpoint is just different because um, he's right, right? I mean, that's his job to protect the student athletes because they're amateurs. He's right by the definition of how it's currently laid out. But I think a lot of us are kind of like, yeah, that might be an archaic definition of how college football players are viewed. I I just think if the view of amateurism is different and these players are getting paid and they're viewed more as professionals, which I think a lot of us think that's the that's the that's the way college football is moving that whole conversation of liability and accountability and all that it's different because if there's if they're being paid and they're not full-fledged amateurs the players are accountable for themselves and they don't need the ad's to to kind of kind of back them up yeah my point is it is semantics because you can say we're putting the welfare of the student athletes first and i do think that's very sincere motivation and it comes from from a a genuine place but that's also the same thing as guarding against liability and so it's just really about how you want to frame it 
but it is the same thing uh, to a degree. The one thing I will say there too is uh, it's easy to kind of pick apart all the decisions and stuff and it's never it's never easy. But I think that the, the vibe right now is kind of like, hey, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, hey, they're, they're, they're the weak links, right? They're the guys that kind of gave up on the season and that might be a little harsh, but and then the, the SEC and the ACC, like they're the tough kids on the block and they're going to make this happen. But for me, like I'm saying, hey, slow your roll a little bit because it's easy to pick apart the Pac-12 and the, and the Big Ten for what they did. But, I mean, the SEC, I, I still have doubts, big, big doubts about right. that season will happen at all. And it's, I mean, you fast forward and uh, one old Miss player gets a positive test and it spreads to a dozen guys. What happens then? And they might look terrible here in a month. So I, I do want to say that qualifier of it's easy to pick apart Pac-12. It's easy to pick apart these conferences and the decision they made. But get ready for these other conferences because I, I do not feel confident in, uh, in, in, a, in a safe season and a successful season uh, with, with the current lay, lay of the land in our society. Yeah, so, so let's get into that and, and get into myocarditis for those who aren't fully up to speed on all this. Again, just to put a cap on the previous topic, I still feel the same way about everything we talked about last week about the player groups, and I thought it was a hastily and disorganized approach and didn't really meet the the target of what they were hoping to achieve. And whether or not it played any factor, I guess everyone's saying it didn't. That's fine. I do believe that myocarditis is the driving force here. I, I don't dispute that at all. And it, it kind of fits the narrative of why this changed so suddenly, and it's that a study came out of Germany, I don't know, last week, a week and a half ago, that tested 100 patients who had tested positive for COVID-19 and found in, it was like 78, it was an overwhelming number of them, that they also then were having heart issues that weren't there before. Myocarditis, this, this uh, inflammation of the heart muscle. And that was just a new wrinkle that no one was really talking about two weeks ago, and it gave everyone a pause. Well, not everyone, because obviously some conferences haven't haven't uh, reacted the same way. But it it gave the Pac-12 and Big Ten leaders, medicine, the medical board, etc., a pause to say, "Wait, we don't know enough about this. If, if this this is a small sample size, it's one study of 100 people. But if these results are are accurate, and and this is the percentage of of people who are at risk for a heart condition related to getting COVID-19, we've got to step back and figure out more about this and have a handle on it. And I thought that USC's totally. team physician, Dr. Seth Gamrat, was, was really interesting on this yesterday. And he said, I want to be able to make a promise to the parents whose kids were taken care of that there is no risk and that we can guarantee your kid's safety. And we, we can't say that now because we don't even know enough about this myocarditis deal. We've got to learn more about it. So that's, that's that into things. So then the question arose, well, if there's all this collaboration between conferences and we're all working up the same data, how do two conferences reach this conclusion while the other three power five conferences don't asking around about it? And this was not from the official press conference, but Kind of the notion that I got was that, well, eventually the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 are going to have to acknowledge it. They're going to have to either say, we don't believe this data, or they're going to have to say, we understand the data and we're, we're okay with the risk. And so far, they've gotten to this point by saying, we want to learn more about this. So we want to hear more about what led to the Pac-12 Big Ten's decisions. Uh, as of now, we're going to keep moving forward playing. And they haven't come out and said, we understand what myocarditis is. We don't view it as a risk. They have not said that. And eventually there will have to be a reckoning from those conferences where they address the elephant in the room and say, we have seen the data. We understand what they're working off of we just interpret it differently and don't think it's important enough to, to shut the season down over no exactly and uh, and that point right there is is why i feel like uh, the sec it's easy to be in in, in a comfortable spot right now but uh, i think the hardest days are are ahead of them for sure but your, your point about how they perceive the data i mean that's a 
that's a bigger uh, cultural thing as well. I think that area of the country is just different in how they're perceiving the virus or how they look at the virus than Ryan, where me and you live uh, in Los Angeles. And so I think, uh, like we've like we've said a bunch, it's 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 a conversation about college football. Don't get me wrong, but it's also a bigger uh, societal question. And and you're spot on. Those questions have to be answered at some point. The doctors are, are the exact same thing, uh, whether if it's Pac-12 or SEC. And so. Uh, They'll have to answer the bell uh, sooner rather than later. You mentioned earlier, I, I'm not convinced that the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 make it to the starting line or to the finish line. So before we just go so far into the the rabbit hole of what does this mean for the Pac-12 long term, you know, what's, what's the damage of them not playing and the other leagues playing, we don't know if they're going to be playing yet. What, what they're doing right now is buying themselves more time and not – jumping to an end conclusion and I'm sure there's fans of USC that certainly feel the Pac-12 could have done the same thing but I think ultimately they felt we're nowhere near the comfort level that we're going to need to be at to do this. There's no point delaying. We're not going to get there in time for the fall season. So people then that the big question is well what is going to change in a few months and we even asked that question on this podcast on the last podcast because I didn't have the answer then I've got a little more insight and I can at least tell you what the thinking is and whether you want to believe it or not is, is your prerogative but the logic is that A in a few months this myocarditis thing is not going to be a brand new wrinkle just thrown on top of us and we'll have some handle on it and at least know what we're dealing with and B there is major optimism I, I'm not even sure if it's optimism there's just confidence that there is going to be greatly enhanced testing capabilities within the next couple or few months to the point where schools like USC could test everybody every day and get results back in 10, 15 minutes. And that allows them to have a much more real-time handle on containing any spread. Because if you're testing once a week and you find out you have someone who's tested positive, now you're in a panic mode going, well, who was in contact with that person over the last week? And you're doing a very complex contact tracing back to see what the spread is from the result of that weekly test. If you're testing every day and it's not an issue and it's boom, boom, it's done, and someone tests positive, you immediately remove them from the equation you put them in the, the isolation uh, quarantine protocol, and you're confident that you've nipped in the bud the spread right away. So that is as much of a factor as anything why they think, why these Pac-12 and Big Ten leaders think there could be a better chance to play in the spring. Yeah, and that makes total sense to me. I mean, that, that feels like that's been, I, I will say, that feels like that's been the, the number one factor for for many months now is uh, is how can we get widespread testing uh, for for all citizens and yeah I'm I'm I like the the prospects of a spring season I think there's people that are adamant that it could not happen I do not net out that hard uh, the two reasons that I feel like a lot of people are saying it in addition to your testing and, and more COVID reasons but um, the other two are kind of one, what happens to the major players that need to leave for the NFL or want to leave for the NFL? Is that going to be a huge pool of guys that um, make it not worth or not uh, not able to, to play a college season? And then um, the second concern is the health reasons and, and the head injuries and all that. And with a shortened off season and a quick turnaround, if you played in the spring and then had to play in the fall, like how does how does that work? And to me, those factors are not as big as I feel like people are making it out to be. And I don't mean to be... Um, not aware of head injuries and the severity of that, but I think there's just things you can do, whether it's more roster management, extending redshirt years to give guys more snaps, whether it's putting a snap count on guys. Um, I just think at that point, if our world still hasn't had football and January comes around and that's the one hurdle, I just feel like we'll be able to push through that. And then um, on the other end, in terms of big time guys uh, leaving for the NFL, I just don't think that pool of players is large enough to not make a season happen. Um, yes, it's the Trevor Lawrences. Yes, it might be an, an Amon Ross St. Brown, who right now might be a 
more of a, a, a second, third, fourth round pick. Sure, you might lose guys like that, but you have enough guys in the locker room to play football and get it done. You could push the season back on the back end. I just, I think in the grand scheme of, of hard decisions at play, those feel like solvable. So right now, as it currently stands in what, mid-August, uh, I am not closing the door on a spring season like, uh, like a lot of people I'm, I'm seeing on my Twitter feed might be. Well, you've just you just teased all of our next few topics here, and Love which it. is perfect. You've set, you've set the table for us. So there is a lot of doubt about spring season, and I thought it was interesting how guarded both you know Pac-12 officials and then in the USC press conference Wednesday how guarded Clay Helton and Mike Bone were about a spring season. They're very acknowledging that it's it's too early to have any definitive idea about it yet and it depends on a lot of factors when clay was asked about it his answer was actually like 13 questions like what's going to happen with this what's going to happen with that this 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 and want to see where all stands and he's right um mike bone i just want to read mike bone's quote i thought it was good he said until we learn more that we don't have optimism we believe in hope i know that clay and his coaches believe in giving our players hope I'm a firm believer that until we have additional information, there's no reason for us not to be optimistic. He sounded a little bit like Morgan Freeman from Shawshank Redemption there. <laughs> it did. <laughs> but, uh, but I think he summed up the sentiment very succinctly there is that, well, we're going to be optimistic, and we have no reason right now to say that it can't happen. Now, does that change in a month or two months? Maybe it does. But as of right now, we're going to be cautiously optimistic that this is possible. So this is where we really get to tap into your your expertise, and you already kind of hinted at it, and I was really interested to hear what you said there. People are very quick to say, well, you can't play two college football seasons in one calendar year. As I was answering that line of thinking and questions on the board, I didn't really know what to say, because I'm, here I'm thinking, well, let's say you, you are able to start in January, which is the best-case scenario uh, the soonest it could possibly get going. Maybe there's a, a training camp in December and then games in January. If that happens, and you go January, February, March, and some postseason in April, that still leaves May, June, July, August, and maybe you push the season back a month in 2021. That's five months. Is five months not enough time for the body to recover and play a season for an 18 to 21-year-old highly tuned and in peak shape athlete? I can't answer that question, but one Max Brown can, and so let's <laughs> yes, I can. let's go further into that and take us through the feeling coming off a full season, and how long it takes until you feel like you're ready to get back into that that muck and grind, and whether that scenario I just laid out makes sense to you as a former player. Yeah, five months is, is plenty of plenty of time, and. Don't get me wrong. You're talking to a quarterback who didn't have to go through the daily grind of uh, some of the spring ball and the uh, the nine on seven inside run and some of those drills that the linebackers and linemen have to deal with. So it's it's easy for me to sit here and say that, but it, it would hurt the guys that have some more serious injury uh, like surgeries, so that they they kind of count on that eight month off season, nine month off season. Um, so. I mean, it would hurt those guys, but those guys are not the masses. I mean, we're talking about potentially canceling an entire college or not having an entire college football season. There's so much money on the line. There's guys' career on the line. There's coaches' careers on the line. So, yes, it's a hurdle. Yes, it's a factor. Yes, it's a big factor. But I don't think it's a big enough factor to not play. I think five months is is plenty enough time, and I'm not being uh, – insensitive to to head injuries those are very real but I just like I said I, th- I think you can get creative with how you do that does it look like um, cutting cutting down overall games does it look like cutting down how long quarters are and things like that does it look like um, putting like I said pitch counts for lack of a better term on on, on certain players you can only play a certain amount of certain amount of snaps and you're, you're forcing guys to, to go deeper into their rosters and have other guys play you extend redshirt rules I, I, I just think if that is the one factor and yes I know it's 2020 and, and head injuries are front of mind but it's still football and spring ball would happen uh, yes don't get me wrong spring balls a lot lighter than a full season but hitting still happening hitting tackling it, it's still happening that uh, it just it doesn't hit me as hard if that is your main reason for not having football in the spring 
Yeah, uh, again, Seth Gamrat, USC's team position, was on the conference call Wednesday, and he was asked about that, and he said, well, certainly as an orthopedic surgeon, it would give me pause, and I would have some concerns and questions, but it's not impossible, and it would just involve a lot more dialogue and a lot more thought and creativity, and I haven't even thought about the idea of snap counts. Like you mentioned, I think that's that's really smart. That's definitely one way you could do it at certain positions or however you want to work it. I think there there is a workaround, and we just have to acknowledge that nothing is going to be ideal. We passed the exit for ideal many miles ago, and we're going to get off wherever we get off, and it's not going to be our initial destination, but we're going to have to make the best of it if we want to have any semblance of college football and have a season. And you could get real creative and do like a full condensed season. And we're talking, I mean, I saw a tweet yesterday. It was like, Michigan and Ohio State fans, why don't we just play one game New Year's Day, like pay-per-view, like something like that. Like we're, in the, we're living in the world where the NBA is playing in a bubble in Disney World. Like anything's, anything's on the table. You could do a super, you could do like a Pac-12 South schedule and just in the spring and kind of kind of do something like that. Like the ratings and the money for that, people will be, at that point, people will be, chomping at the bit for college football i think anything's in the play and i think with if that's the biggest hurdle you can just get creative with uh, with how you tackle it yeah i'm not going to dismiss the fact that that if the sec acc and big 12 do play and do get through the fall relatively unscathed it, there is some fallout for the pac-12 and the big 10 and it does put things in a difficult spot that's a good point because uh let's say they somehow do get all the way through and then the Pac-12 is loading up for a spring football season. Well, then that's where you are at a big disadvantage. If then come 2021 fall, the Alabama Crimson Tide have had eight months to rest, and USC's had four and a half. Like that's where that's where it might be worth for the long-term longevity of the conference to say, hey, we'll take a loss in 2020 2021 calendar year, and we'll we'll come back fall of 2021 for uh, for a season. That is that that is a very good point, and, and definitely something to to keep your eye on if we're if we fast forward here a few months and somehow some way the SEC and SEC ACC and SEC go uh, go unscathed. One more quote from the Wednesday press conference from again Seth Gamrat, the USC team physician, when he was asked about the conferences having different interpretations and all this, he said, "I think at the other conferences, I wish them well." I hope that the cardiac issue turns out to be overblown, but we don't know that information and that uncertainty is what causes us to give pause. Meaning that if this cardiac issue turns out to be a big issue for kids who have COVID, this will prove to be a very, very good decision on our part and our athletes' health and well-being is first and foremost. Basically, and this is where it gets really tough, is that none of us want to see, if the SEC and ACC play, we're hoping that that goes off unscathed. That's just what you hope for. You don't want to see anyone face the negative repercussions of a of a bad decision on, on those conferences' part. So you're hoping it works out for them. But if it works out for them, it looks bad on the Pac-12. And if yep. they have to, if they have to call things off or abort plan, then it makes the Pac-12 and Big Ten look like we really did have the uh, health and safety of our athletes first and foremost. And we were kind of the guiding example there in how to prioritize student-athletes. However it shakes out, there's going to be a different perception and different optics. And it's, it's, just, it's, it's really interesting, and it's not anything you're rooting for one way or the other. Everyone, I think, agrees we're rooting for us to learn that, hey, this is not an issue, and that, and that people are going to be okay, and we're going to find a way to get through this where athletes aren't at risk but it's it's a really interesting time because we have not seen this kind of divide in college football or in college sports before this is just new uncharted territory where people are going their own way and making their own interpretations about very serious matters and someone's gonna be right someone's gonna be wrong and it's gonna be very interesting to see the reaction and fallout therein Without a doubt, football has a different meaning in in the South for sure, and it's one of those things that could be a blessing or it could be a curse. It could be a blessing if it allows them to get to the season and elevate their conference even more, give their student-athletes a chance, or it could be a curse, which no one's hoping for. Um, 
in that if, if, if there are serious health concerns or guys end up getting seriously, seriously sick, that's, that's never fun. And that's, if that does happen, that means that their leaders let football get in the way of the safety and betterment of their student athletes. That is what it is. Everyone has the same facts. Dr. Gamrat said, said it. We've seen all the doctors across the country say it. Well, they're all getting the same facts. Every conference is just interpreting it differently based on their sentiment of leaders in that conference that are, that are, that are making decisions. There's going to be an I told you so coming from one side or the other. And yep. it, it's just it, – it's, it's going to be really awkward uh, either way. It's, it's really awkward that the NCAA couldn't have a unifying presence in this and set the tone for things. I know there's got to be a lot of frustration for the people involved that it was left to be decided by five disparate groups and not by one unified and, group. And the fact that there's going to be an I told you so means that, that that's what's most interesting to me out of this is, is what, what, what comes out of this. Is there going to be a, a break off with schools and conferences or whatnot and, and, and all that? What happens to, to, to the, the, big, the, the big schools, the smaller schools? That to me, it feels like there's, there's too many people across all conferences that are not getting a better result out of all of this. And it's the because I told you so deal. And that to me is the most interesting thing to follow over the next year is what changes in the college football landscape as a result of these decisions. Yeah, I guess the way that to close this part of the conversation and sum it up is to say that college sports, college football in particular, has so long been an escape from reality for us, an escape from everything else in the world. And now it's reflective of the tenor of our world where everyone is just – uh, staunchly dug in on opposing sides and there's uh, just constant conflict and disagreement about everything and there are, there are no consensuses anymore and that's finally seeped into what used to be a, a retreat for all of us was to enjoy college football and I, I don't want to use the word the purity of college sports because I don't think we ever thought that was the case but it, it was at least separated from political debate and now it's just a very much a part of that reality as well. Totally, totally, totally. Let's segue to the present. And I thought it was interesting in hearing from Keaton Slovis and Talano Hufanga on Wednesday and as we got their reaction. Keaton Slovis said that he had his lifting group like an hour after the Pac-12 announcement Tuesday. So it wasn't like his <laughs> world stopped or you know everything just froze. That was his schedule, and it, it carried on. And he went and had his lifting group. And Wednesday morning, I don't know who all was out there, but I, I know that Talano Hufanga said at least the, the DBs had their conditioning workout on the field at 6.30 a.m. Wednesday morning, and they were out there. And Clay Helton talked about how proud he was of the attitude and the, the response from the players. Max, uh, if you were playing right now and you just got this devastating news that you're not going to have a season in the fall, and you might not have a season at all. Are you going back to practice the next morning? And how do you navigate these next few months? How do you stay motivated and focused to keep pushing towards something that is a moving target that may not actually exist? Yeah, it's hard. Don't get me wrong. But that's that's their only option, right? I think the worst thing you could possibly do if you're a player right now is – sit on your ass for three months, let your body go to crap, and, 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 it, and then now it impacts your next season and the trajectory of your career in that way. And so I commend those guys for, for getting their work in. Um, that's probably how I would be. And I think for a lot of these guys, they don't know what to do, right? A, a fall without football is something they've like never had in their life for a lot of those guys. And so that will be an interesting thing to follow is how does Clay manage that? How do coaches manage that? Is it um, let's take this time to really get our roster fully, fully, completely healthy. Is it we're doing two practices a week and two strength training workouts a week? Like, what does that look like? And I think that will be a very, very interesting thing to follow. But for a lot of these guys that are football through and through, they're going to be doing the seven on seven workouts. They're going to want to get their work in. They're going to want to lift. And especially for these younger guys, man, what an opportunity to, to really change your body, which you would do anyways uh, at that stage in your career. But now with no practice, 
no hardcore at this point, like physical, physical, physical uh, hitting. And, and, and that's kind of where it, it can be tough to, to keep up with your body and, and changing it in that regard. You're not going to have that. And so take advantage of this time. And uh, one of my former teammates, Justin Davis, uh, I saw him tweet him tweet right when this all went down is just like, oh, this will be a blessing in disguise. You guys look in two years from now, this will be a blessing in disguise. I don't know if I'm that far uh, in that direction, but his point was just, you have a season without football. What does that allow for guys in terms of maturity? What is that both physically and mentally and just the, their overall football trajectory? I think there is opportunities to, to make the most of this. And hopefully that's how most guys are wired and sounds like they are. Yeah, like with anything in life, it's what you make of it. Yeah. So I know this is impossible to answer because you were never put in the situation. But just take a guess if you could. What you knew of, of your teammates and the the mindset of, of the roster when you were there. What percentage of guys do you think will be totally self-motivated and not need any push and which are going to need strong leadership either from the coaching staff or from teammates to pull them in and say, hey, we, we got to keep grinding. This this still matters right now. Yeah, usually I segment it into 10, 80, and 10. There's about 10% of guys are kind of the cancers. There's the guys that's second this announcement happened. I bet Clay Helton went and, and, and said, hey, make sure we check up on so-and-so. Make sure you call him. Make sure we don't lose him. Then there's 80% of the guys that are just going to kind of follow the mold of the culture of the team. So whether you have great leadership or not, whether your coach has a certain structure or not, whether your position coach is saying something or not, they'll follow the lead and they'll either rise to the occasion or kind of droop down or they'll, they'll just do what they're told Oftentimes no more, oftentimes no less, that kind of thing. And then there's the top 10% uh, that will, they're lifting right now as we speak. They might get extra working on their own. They might do padded stuff on their own. They're chomping at the bit to hit. The concept of not having a spring ball because of some of these other concerns is ludicrous. They'll do whatever it takes to play. That's how the roster usually, in my experience, was kind of segmented. And so... In that regard, I think if you have some of your better players in that upper 10%, they'll bring in and maybe it extends to more 25%, 30%, 40% of the roster, and you'll have a very, very successful fall. But if your top 10% is only walk-ons and guys that aren't necessarily leaders of the team, guys that are going to really, really rally, rally a team, then that's where it becomes bigger concern. And then that's where there, there's concerns over, is this fall going to be something serious that propels our program forward? Or is it going to be something that we look back on as a period where guys didn't take advantage of things? And so uh, it's not a, a hard and fast 10, 80%, 10%. But uh, that's at least in my mind usually how I kind of segment a roster. No, it makes sense. That's great perspective. It, uh, for USC in particular, I know that most schools around the country could probably frame the same argument or case. I do think it, it's just really unfortunate because there was a feeling in the early spring that if this program was going to turn around under Clay Helton, that the opportunity was there with the recruiting momentum that was rolling at that time, with this new defensive staff that had brought so much energy. And you just have to wonder if that can be reclaimed, if the recruiting uh, mojo can be sustained, or if anything's lost. I do think it's very unfortunate, though, uh, even beyond the football standpoint, what Mike Bone and Brandon Sosna were doing to add resources to the program, there are still positions that were earmarked and yet to be filled and with the projected revenue losses you wonder if that's going to happen now and so there was this this real momentum throughout the operation from top to bottom that hey things are changing we're giving this program what it needs we're putting these extra resources in we are turning the corner right now with usc football and there were there were enough tangible results that it wasn't just bluster and it wasn't just uh, PR spin, that you could actually see some of these changes and say, hey, that, you know, that, that is pretty encouraging. And you can see the recruiting results and say, you know what, if, if they close out a top three national class and, and defensive staff makes an impact in the fall, maybe this program does get moving and trending back to where everyone wants to see it. And you just wonder what this is all going to do to that. And that's, that's a question we can't answer yet, but it's a question that hangs out there for me. It's interesting you bring up the recruiting side because uh, 
I, I need to flush out this take because I hadn't even got that far. But it could be a blessing in disguise on the recruiting front because, Ryan, when we had talked over the past couple of months, I was kind of like, hey, this is great that they're doing the recruiting momentum and good things are happening on the recruiting trails and guys are excited and the past is in the past a little bit. But hey, wait till the fall and you have to win games. If you win, great, guys will sign on the dotted line. If you lose, well, guys are gonna go elsewhere and the recruiting class is gonna go down the, go down the gutter. Well, this fall, if there's not games, there's no more data points to, to, to change your thought process on. There's a world where maybe all these top guys continue this positive mojo of SC's gonna be back. When, whenever, whenever, the, whenever we resume football, um, SC's where I wanna be, and there's no more on-field data points to deter guys from going elsewhere. So I'm not, I, need, I need to think about that take more but that is something that is, will be interesting to follow. And then you get into the whole debate of, well, if I'm a West Coast guy, will I start going to the SEC? Because I know they'll start playing right. and, and some of those thoughts. But at least an interesting talking point when you talk about kind of if guys, if there's no fall and there's no kind of let's wait and see how things play out. Let's see if there's new coaches, right? Because there's not going to be as many. There's not going to be coaches fired and, and things changing in that regard. Um, that could help out SC on the recruiting front. That's a very fair point, and I think there are fair points on both sides, whether this is a positive or negative for recruiting. I think I can totally buy into what you just said there. I can also point to the fact that you're going to have players go, well, these other conferences are playing, and this one's not. Uh, do I want to risk facing this in the future? And, again, that's going to all remain – tenuous and based on what happens with the rest of these conferences in a month or so but I, I think that there's going to be people viewing this from both perspectives it's going to be very interesting to follow it's going to be very interesting to see if there are decommitments <clears throat> I, I can tell you one of the biggest frustrations and this was before this happened this week was the reality that there probably wasn't going to be recruiting visits and that really cut off a lot of strong leads of guys that they thought they had if we can just get him on campus we've got a chance at this guy and it became clearer and clearer that that's not going to happen in this recruiting cycle you're not going to get many guys that haven't visited your school and haven't been on an official visit brandon campbell is a the four-star running back commits a an outlier where he hasn't been to usc yet and yet he's so staunchly committed that he's just announced on wednesday that he is going to skip his senior high school season to protect his health and focus on being an early enrollee at USC. That, that's the outlier. There's a lot of other guys that if USC had been able to bring them on campus to visit this fall, they might have had a chance of, of bolstering this class even further. So it goes both ways. I can't I'll, I'll, be, begin to tell you how it, what the final balance sheet is going to be, on whether or not this uh, negatively or positively or not at all impacts USC's recruiting outcome. I, I get that, and everything you said is right. But if you, in my opinion, if you, especially in the Pac-12, if you lined up all 12 schools and said, "How is this going to impact their recruiting?" I think USC is the least impacted by this because, and you could maybe say, you could maybe say like a Washington, or you could probably say Oregon maybe is one. But the reality is, if there's no college football, and there, even more so, if there's no high school football. The guys SC is getting or in going after, they're already on the radars, right? They're already on the recruiting sites. They're already known, right? They, all those guys, the top guys, it's all good if there's no uh, college football season because they already have film. It's the Oregon States. It's the ASUs that want to build off momentum. True. It's the Utahs that count on going out on the road and finding diamonds in the rough. It's, the, it's those schools that count on senior year films to find guys that matured late. Those are the type of schools that should be sitting there saying, oh, crap. How are we going to recruit? Because we count on that footage. We count on that film. We count on finding diamonds in the rough for our program. USC can just go on 24-7 sports or, or, or rivals. Hey now. Or, hey now. I know. I know. My bad. I'm literally looking at a, the article from something different. Rivals, Trojan sports, go on there. There we go. And, uh, and, and see these recruiting rankings and say, all right, Ryan, Ryan's saying that we should get this quarterback. Sweet. Pull the trigger. And I'm obviously dumbing it down. But the point, point is still right there and that I think USC is the least affected outside of maybe Oregon in the conference in terms of COVID-19 recruiting. Yeah, and, and to build off that and to, con to contradict my own point I just made previously, if any school should be able to weather the lack of 
official visits and recruiting visits in general, it should be the school with the most talent in its own backyard that's already familiar with the campus. And you should be able to say that, well, yeah, maybe USC is not going to get this guy from Texas or this guy from the East Coast because they couldn't get him on campus. But if they just take care of business in their backyard, which they've largely done in this cycle, uh, then that doesn't matter. So as you frame that point, I think more about it, you can make the strong case that USC should be more impervious to this than most programs, but we'll see what happens off that. I want to segue when we mentioned the early enrollees, and this is a big question that I don't have the answer for, but nobody has the answer for yet. So the way it works is, you know, you can't just bring in as many early enrollees as you want. You have to have these, these space under the scholarship cap to fit them in. So let's say that you had three open scholarships anyways in the previous cycle. They just, they just weren't filled or guys transferred out. And then you have eight guys leaving mid-year because they're graduates and they're getting ready for the NFL, this and that. So that's 11 spots. Well, then you can bring in 11 early enrollees. You can't bring in 20 early enrollees because you don't have 20 spots. This complicates things because if there's not going to be a fall season, which there's not here, and guys are going to hang around for the spring season, well, some guys that maybe would have left mid-year are not leaving now and less spots are coming open. And everyone is waiting for the NCAA to figure out what it's going to do regarding eligibility relief. And are they going to extend the scholarship cap for a year? And it becomes more complicated to do that when it's only two conferences that are affected, Power Five-wise, and three that aren't. Because then you're going to have the SEC and Big Ten, or SEC and uh, Big 12 and ACC cry foul and say, well, you can't give you can't give USC 10 more scholarships for 2021. That, that affects us too. We're all competing for a national championship. It's a major quagmire, and it affects the schools. It affects the kids that were planning to enroll early in January. And we don't have the answers yet. And there's going to have to be some formal decision made one way or the other that sets clarity and direction. Because and there are a lot of guys who have, who have structured their, their entire academic approach for the last year or two years to be an early graduate and enroll early at, at their college. And guys that have already said that I'm foregoing my senior season of high school and getting ready to be an early enrollee because we're not playing in the fall and I'm not going to wait till the spring. And this has just thrown a major wrinkle into all that, and we don't know what's going to happen. And then, and we touched on this last time, if there are early enrollees, which there will be in some capacity, uh, and there's a spring season, are they then eligible to play? And Brandon Campbell, who I mentioned, the four-star running back commit, touched on this in talking to a local Houston outlet on Wednesday night. He said that, that Mike Jinx has told me that if – if uh, the NCAA says that early enrollees can play, he'll he'll consider putting me out there on the field this spring, and that's the mindset he's working off of right now. So it's interesting, yeah. yeah. It, but it's all unknown, and I, I can tell you for a fact, the schools don't know, the coaches don't know, the kids don't know, and the NCAA is supposed to meet on August twenty first to address eligibility matters. But the NCAA has a track record of not being very swift or decisive with these things. And so will we have clear answers in a week? I don't know if we will. But the sooner the better because these kids need to know what the picture is they're looking at. And they were planning to be an early enrollee. They need to know for sure that that's still a possibility and that, yes, USC can take X amount of early enrollees as planned. I know they were, they were planning to take between like 10 and 15 early enrollees. And yeah. we'll just have to see what happens with that. Now, again, you may have guys, like you touched on opting out and say, I'm going to train for the NFL draft, and spots come up in that way. So it's a give and take, but it's an entirely different equation now, and we just don't know how it works out. Yeah, I'll be interested to follow. To your, to your point about the early enrollees, and if they are eligible that spring, um, you better believe Clay Helton, he's, they're going to try to get – front seven depth and guys that have any impact of playing right away, running back is not a position that necessarily SC needs right. a lot of depth at at this point. Right. And so I can see them getting creative and that, that there's there's some gamesmanship there. But uh, to your point about the NCAA, I found it funny. That's just, that's the perfect word to, to describe it. Yesterday, I think it was, they came out with the, uh, the notice that they are going to, if I read the headline right, they are going to 
what's the word, extend the eligibility for guys that don't play this year. So they get, they get a bonus year. And I'm like, great, that's fine. But to your point, they didn't, they didn't, there's still the 85 limit on these rosters. There's still the title nine considerations of having the full ride scholarships. And so that's great, right? That if you're a redshirt senior, you can get another bonus year, but there's only so many spots. So there's someone gets impacted. Someone gets screwed as a result of this. And if, if, if those redshirt seniors kind of roll over into those 85, then that means the high school seniors don't, don't get scholarships. Or how does that trickle down? Those decisions, I, I found it funny yesterday when they came out with that, with that notice because it doesn't really mean anything. Yes, it sounds great, and it sounds like we're doing pro-student-athlete, and it sounds like everything's great, but no decision's been made. No tangible thing's been made, and I love your point about how does that impact the national landscape of the SEC in the, big, in the, uh, the ACC play because there is no way – with the right mind, you can say, all right, Alabama, you get 85 scholarships, and USC, you get 95. Right. There is no way that will ever happen, and it's a great point by you because we'll see how it will it's, – it's a we'll see for everything, but especially that well, one. Well, it, it all comes back again to just the, the, the total dropping of the ball by the NCAA. And I know that college football has kind of uh, moved to – the direction where the Power Five are called the Autonomous Five, and and they have some latitude and authority outside the NCAA umbrella, but still, this this is a moment where the NCAA needed to lead and needed to set a tone for things, and by not doing that, it just created more problems for itself, and probably more problems that it's going to either sidestep or or not adequately answer, and it's there needs to be a major, major, major reckoning now about the NCAA, its role, its structure, and who it's serving, because this has just really, really revealed the holes in the dam, or the holes in the boat, or whatever analogy you want to use, yep. and that, that there's a, a problem that needs dire fixing. Let's hit on one more topic that we touched on, or teased earlier, the opt-out potential of guys who say, you know what, I'm just going to get ready for the NFL. And I know there's been a lot of speculation and predictions that, oh, well, well this means that Amon Ross St. Brown and Elijah Barrett Tucker and Jay Tufeli, they're gone. They're all getting ready for the NFL. I don't know. Um, I think it depends on a lot of moving factors, again, like with anything else. Does the NFL change its pre-draft structure? Does it move the combine? Does it move the draft? If it moves the combine in the draft, then it still greatly behooves those guys that are either not as high as they want to be with their draft stock, or that could that can clearly boost that draft stock by playing. It behooves those guys to play. And I, I look at an Amon Ross St. Brown, who I know that he probably views himself as a first-round talent. And I think that the consensus would be that he's probably not going to be drafted that high and that he might even be a late second or third round guy we just don't know yet but he's a guy that's kind of sacrificed these last two years he's a guy that that wants to be an outside receiver that has played largely inside to accommodate veterans like michael Pittman and tyler vaughn's and who this year was projected to get a chance to be a mostly full-time outside receiver and how much would that help his draft stock if he was able to play that role this season and, and show what he could do there and kind of diversify the tape that that he has out there and maybe his draft stock shoots way up and i think if it's still possible to do that and not be overlapping with the combine i think that behooves him to do that so to me it all depends on what still is to come with the other conferences and if if they have to reverse course in a month and join the big 10 and pac 12 or if they go their own way and and it works out and then how the NFL reacts to all this. And the NFL may, may look at it and say, well, even if it's just the Big Ten and Pac-12, that's a, that's a lot of our, our draft pool. Maybe we want to see them play a season. Maybe it benefits us for them to get that season in. So we'll say we're going to move the combine to May and the draft in June and go from there. And why can't they do that? Oh, they're going to lose rookie mini camps in April? Okay, no big deal. So there's a lot of flexibility and creativity that can happen, and I'm not going to jump to the conclusion that others have and say, well, well, these guys are definitely gone. They're gone. Max, what do you think happens? Yeah, and I think a big factor also is what happens at the NFL season because 
we assume that a full season is going to happen, but if, what if they don't get a full season? Then the current rookie class, the the Justin Herberts of the world, like, I mean, do do they just kind of say, all right, well, you just press pause for 2020, and then now Justin Herbert, you're a rookie again next year, and do they they, they push the draft or something like that? Uh, hearing you kind of go through all the factors, which which you were spot on with, does the NFL try to protect players from potentially leaving too early and only do like a couple rounds of drafts so the J2 Fellies of the world get their shot to cuz clocks clocks tip, ticking for a guy like J2 Fele. If he doesn't if he doesn't go to the NFL, that's one more year his body's getting older, that that kind of thing that it could potentially wear on wear on his body and, and his checkbook a little bit. So I could see the NFL maybe doing something like that where they only they do a very condensed draft and as a result it would only allow guys who who know they have an NFL future and know they have NFL traction to to take advantage of that. I could see something there, but um yeah, like I, like I started with uh, earlier in this podcast, I just don't think that pool is that big, right? We talk about Jay, we talk about Amon Ra, um, and after that, it's even hard for me to kind of come up with, uh, I guess, like a Tyler Vaughns and, and some of the, the running backs, maybe like guys like that. Uh, but it's not it's not widespread. It's not huge chunks of the roster, and sure, Clemson and Alabama might push back a little bit by, uh, with that, but that's only two schools. I I just. I don't think that's the masses, but I do think all those factors you laid out are, are very interesting to follow. And it starts with just, hey, is the NFL going to? Is the NFL season going to happen? And that's kind of the first data point on that end. In addition to the college football season, and then um, yeah. But if I, if you ask Max, where do you put your money right now? You have to bet something. I kind of like the prospects of a condensed draft. If there is no full college football season, that feels like the smoothest middle ground but just like anything we've talked about it's never uh never clear cut well it's a really interesting theory and baseball obviously did that they they went from their typical what is it 40 round draft or whatever to a five round draft this year and obviously it had a dramatic impact on guys who didn't get opportunities they would have otherwise and but i see a different motivation for baseball they were viewing a, a a cash drain situation where they didn't think they could fund minor league baseball this year and they were going to be cutting minor league teams and so they could get by without doing a big draft football a lot of the uh financial structure of a football organization relies on getting uh that cheap young talent to offset the high-paid veterans i think you'd have a lot of pushback from teams saying no 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 we need all seven rounds we need as many draft picks as possible because we can't structure our payroll without having those extra five guys who are going to be on minimum rookie contracts. But it's an interesting theory, and everything is a hypothetical right now and, and up for debate and uh, without clear answer. So we'll see. There was, I guess there's one more potential fallout of all this, is the the fear that if the other conferences play on, that they will somehow plunder the Big Ten and Pac-12 teams uh, through the transfer market and get guys to transfer out and join Alabama and Clemson and Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's a possibility that you'll see a few grad transfers, but again, every team has to have that scholarship space. So I'm sure that a Clemson and Alabama are probably right at that 85 limit. And if there's no space, there's no space. You can't just uh, just – just add on and pay a luxury tax. It doesn't work that way in college football. So that greatly limits the possibility. Then, again, we don't know if you're not a grad transfer, would you even have a chance of having your eligibility uh, granted for this fall? And we're in mid-August now, and if these leagues are going to play in in a month, uh, how are you going to sort all that out in time? So I am not of the mind that I'm fearing a mass exodus of players to the transfer market. Clay Helton was asked about it Wednesday. He kind of dismissed it, and I, I think he said, you know, it's, it, transfers are a part of football, and it's possible, but it's not something that we're we're actively thinking about or worried about right now. Yeah, and that's the mindset you got to have if you're Coach Helton. I mean, we, we live in the transfer portal uh, era, so there's nothing you can do about it, but yeah, to me, it's not the mass amount of guys, but I think it could be two or three a conference. It's not going to be two or three a team. Just a couple guys here. It could be the impact team or impact uh, impact movement guys. But uh, it's actually funny looking back on my 2016 season when I was battling Sam and, and SC fans. Obviously, listening, well, they, they they remember that QB battle and. 
I know behind the scenes, I wasn't aware of this at the time, but behind the scenes, my brother and my dad had the had the phone lines ready to go in the event that I did not beat out Sam. There was like a 72-hour window in which Clay was going to make his decision. And then if I hadn't beat out Sam, I could have then fired up the phones and tried to land somewhere in 72 hours. It would have been ridiculously tough. I don't even know if I could have swung it. But at that stage in my uh, my career, it was kind of like I, I can't sit around and wait any longer. I had my degree in hand. That's that's the leverage you get by by, by graduating school. And so, uh, yeah, that was going on behind the scenes. So it's kind of funny when I when I saw this alert that semester schools hadn't started yet, and 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 that and transferring would be an option. I was like, ooh, that would have been that would have been interesting back in the day uh, for guys that have that decision of, hey, I have degree in hand, I might be one foot out the door already for the NFL, trying to make my name there. Do they go down to the transfer market? So interesting story, and I'm sure uh, sure the listeners will like that too. Very interesting perspective on your 72-hour window there. That's that's uh, that's great insight, though. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a few transfers. I think it's going to be minimal, but there will be some, and we'll see if it affects USC. Max, the irony here for us is that, that we, we kept talking and saying, well, eventually we're going to get closer to, to football happening, and we'll have uh, some good podcast father. And it turned out to be the end of football that has brought us back together for some great podcasts this week. It was awesome. Thanks, Ron.